Good morning. Well, it's a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord. We want to welcome each of you here this morning. Uh, we want to send a special welcome to those who are listening online as well. We want to invite you to stand this morning as we prepare our hearts for worship.
song this morning. I wanted to read from 1 John 4, 13 through 19. I've got the words up there so you can follow along or read along with me. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be with the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us.
Amen. Why don't we give the Lord a big round of applause this morning? That was awesome. There, I say this almost every week, but there's literally nothing better than starting our week off singing the Lord's praises together. And uh, I'm just so glad to see all of you here this morning. Uh, it's so great to be together as the church and to uh, have a great worship team to lead us like that and to come into the Lord's presence together. Now we get to study God's word together. Uh, man, what a, what a special treat this is, and it's such a joy to see you. And so good to see, you know, every week the last couple of months we've had more and more people coming back to church, and we're so glad to, you know, have each and every one of you with us. Uh, we know we still have a lot of our church family watching online, so I just want to say hello to you as well this morning and let you know that we love each of you and looking forward to the day when you can be back with us as well. But, uh, but God is good. He's been really taking care of our church, providing for our church. We have so much to be thankful for. Uh, it's been uh, exciting as, as our state is kind of rolling back some of the restrictions more and more. Uh, one of the things that we're really excited about here at Lakes Free Church is uh, we have uh, now taken our capacity restrictions off of our children's ministry on Sunday morning. So, so our elementary children's ministry uh, is now up and running full steam ahead. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. We're really excited about that. Um, we're hoping to do the same thing with our, with our youngest kids, our infants through pre-K. But here's the thing. We need some more volunteers to help us with that. Uh, we've had a baby boom here at Lakes Free in recent years. And, uh, and we really could use some extra help in the nursery and in our preschool area. If you'd be willing to serve even like one hour a month, that would be a huge help to our church and to our children's ministry staff to be able to further open up our ministry. So if you're interested in helping in that capacity, I'd invite you to stop by our next steps desk right after the service and we have people back there that can uh, get your information and we'll follow up with you but uh, that's a great way to help us uh, continue to advance the mission God's given us here at Lakes Free and uh, to serve our families and our youngest children. Uh, another exciting opportunity that I wanted to mention that this is open for, for everyone, for adults, for, for uh, young people. Uh, our missions team is currently planning two short-term mission trips. We're really excited about this. We've, we've had our mission trip opportunities put on hold for a while because of this COVID situation. But uh, two trips coming up. The first one is the week of June 14th. We're going to be sending a team working with Reach Global, which is our free church's uh, mission organization. And they're going to be doing some hurricane relief in North Carolina. So if you have any interest in that, we would encourage you to uh, consider joining that team. Again, the, I think it's the second week of June, the week of June 14th. We're going to send a team of men, women, young people. Uh, and again, we'll take people of all skill levels. But there are still thousands and thousands of people on the East Coast who are, are still recovering and rebuilding from those uh, significant hurricanes that have come through in, the, in recent years. And so uh, we'd encourage you, if you're interested in that, being a part of that mission team, you can see our next steps desk again this morning right after the service, and we have people there that can, uh, can help you and get you more information. The second trip opportunity that we're working on right now, we don't have a date scheduled for it, but we're hoping this year to send a team down to Panama, the country of Panama, uh, to work with our missionaries, Nate and Christina Pino and their family, uh, who lead the YWAM base there, Youth with a Mission, uh, the YWAM Ships Ministry. They have a base there. It's a, one of the most beautiful areas of the world uh, on the coast of Panama. But uh, they're looking for some people to come down and just help them with some general maintenance and upkeep and repairs uh, there on their base. And again, that's an opportunity that's available for, for men and women, for young and old. And uh, if you're interested in that, I'd invite you to see our 
our uh, next steps desk as well. So again, lots of cool things happening both here and then hopefully soon beyond our walls back out into the community, into the world. But uh, we're really excited about all of that. Well, I'm going to invite you to join me in a word of prayer right now. Let's ask the Lord to, uh, to bless us as we turn to his word, as we continue in our study, uh, our final week of our current series, You Lost Me. We're going to be looking at the important topic, the, the challenging topic of, is Christianity oppressive? Is Christianity an oppressive religion? So let's pray together and ask the Lord to lead us and guide us as we look at this really important topic. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for truly the privilege of being your children, of coming into your presence today to worship you. Lord, thank you for that awesome time of worship this morning, those great songs and the powerful truths that uh, were conveyed through them, the great reminders of your amazing grace and your faithfulness and how you break our chains and just so many things that we sung about, Lord, to both encourage our hearts and to glorify your name. And so we just are, are so overjoyed to be together here praising you today. And Lord, uh, as we turn our hearts now to this final message in this series, I just pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts. Uh, God, give me wisdom and clarity as I communicate. And, and I pray, Lord, that what we share today would help equip us as your people to, number one, be more confident in our faith, but then, number two, to, to have some answers that we can share with people in our culture today who who are often so confused and, and uh, are, are wrestling with these important topics. And, and, and I know, Lord, even I at times feel like I don't have the answers. And so I just pray that what we share today would be uh, a time of encouragement and equipping for us so that we can be more effective as your ambassadors as we go into the world. We commit this time to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, today as we wrap up this series, You Lost Me, and again, this series, we've been looking at some of the common challenges that Christianity faces in our culture today, uh, and, and even more than that, some of the common reasons that people often give for why they have left Christianity behind, why, why they've walked away from the church and abandoned their faith. We've been looking at a variety of topics, and today, this final question is one that I think many people wrestle with. The, the idea that Christianity is an oppressive religion. Uh, it, it's a religion that historically has been responsible for all kinds of atrocities. It, it's a religion that's promoted the, the subjugation of women. It's a religion that's given its endorsement to slavery. These are all common ideas that people in our culture often convey and, and, and think about when they think of Christianity. And so again, we want to be equipped as God's people to have a response to these, these common challenges. Uh, let, me, let me just give you an idea of what are some of the common arguments and critiques that we hear in our culture today. I, I brought a few quotes that I found this week from, from various critics of Christianity. Ken Shai here, president of Atheists for Jesus. He says, Christianity has, by certain people, been used throughout history as an excuse for some of the most brutal heartless and senseless atrocities known to man. The historical examples are not difficult to recall. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, the witch burnings, the Holocaust. I did not see much in Christianity that I considered to be worth the having. A man named Sam Harris, who's probably one of the most well-known and outspoken atheists in the world today. Sam Harris 
describe the Bible like this. He says the Bible is a radically pro-slavery document. Slave owners waved Bibles over their heads during the Civil War and justified it. The shortest book in the New Testament is a letter from Paul to a Christian slave owner about owning his Christian slave. These are the kinds of things that people out in our culture are conveying and professing about Christianity. Seth Andrews, who is himself a former Christian, he's the, the founder of an organization called The Thinking Atheist, he says, I continue to be amazed when I see Christian women defending a Bible that denigrates women. What an interesting perspective. Not at all uncommon in our world today. Michael Runyon, who runs a website, x, uh, xchristian.net, he says that the Bible is a product of its times is also revealed by the Ten Commandments. Nowhere in these commandments is there a condemnation of slavery, genocide, child molestation, or cruel treatment of homosexuals or non-human animals, but it does suggest that a wife is the property of the husband. And friends, I could literally go on and on and on sharing examples like these of how many in our world today view Christianity as an oppressive religion, a religion of atrocity, of, of bigotry, of misogyny, and the promotion of slavery. And, and again, these are all common ideas propagated in our culture today. You'll, you'll hear them regularly pronounced on television shows. You'll, you'll see them plastered on memes throughout social media. You'll even hear them argued and, and championed in our schools and universities. Christianity is, is seen in this negative light. And many people say that the Bible actually provides cover for all of these atrocities. So, so how do we respond to these kinds of views that are so common in our world today? What can we say as Christians? Do we have a defense? Because the reality is, as we've seen already in this current series, the, the Bible calls us to give a defense for our faith. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15, he, he says to us, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, so, so put Jesus first, he's number one. But then he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. So, so this was the Apostle Peter, and, and Peter tells us that, look, it, you're going to be asked by people in our world to give them a reason for the hope that you have as a follower of Jesus. So, so the question is, are we prepared to do that? Like, like, you're all here this morning. I would assume that, that most of you who are here who have confessed your allegiance to Christ, you're here because you have found Jesus to be a basis of hope. But are you prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus? Now, it's not just important that we're ready to give answers, but as Peter suggests, secondly, he says, be prepared to give an answer, doing so with gentleness and respect. And friends, that's equally important when it comes to engaging our culture today, especially on these sensitive issues like, like oppression and the idea that Christianity is an oppressive religion. How we convey the truth of Christianity is just as important 
as the fact that we do convey the truth of Christianity. We, we want to speak the truth boldly. We want to have answers and give peace people reasons for the hope that we have. But we want to make sure we're doing that in a gracious and winsome and compassionate way so that people don't feel like we're using our religion as a club just to, to beat them up and win an argument. That's not our goal. Our goal is to share the truth and love to compel them to put their trust in Jesus. So, so this morning, I want to help us find some answers to these common challenges. I, I want to help equip us to be better ambassadors of Jesus Christ when we go into the world, and specifically to be able to address these challenging questions of, is Christianity a, a religion that has promoted oppression throughout history? I want to share with you two fundamental truths this morning on this question. Two fundamental truths. I'm going to encourage you to take some notes this morning, too. I know some of you do that regularly. Others, you may not. Uh, you can also find these notes online later today if you want to go back and re, uh, refer to them. But I want to share some helpful things that I think will really equip you to feel more confident on this particular issue. The, the first fundamental truth that I want us to recognize in response to the charge of oppression is simply this. Waving the banner of Jesus doesn't mean you have the endorsement of Jesus. Friends, this is a pivotal truth to understand. Waving the banner of Jesus doesn't mean you have the endorsement of Jesus. I've shared many times how I, I, as part of my ministry, I have an apologetics ministry that I do uh, where I go and I travel around the country and around the world and I teach people uh, about the reasons we have to be confident in our faith as Christians. And I, I, I've brought many of my friends, my fellow Christian apologists here to Lakes Free over the years at our apologetics conferences. But, but I would be willing to venture that if you were to ask any of my apologist friends or, or, or myself, I'll tell you from my own experience, one of the most common questions I hear from people when I'm lecturing or sharing about the reasons for why we believe what we believe as Christians, one of the most common responses I get from people, especially non-Christian skeptics, critics of Christianity, is simply this. What about the Crusades, Jason? What about the Crusades? Isn't Christianity responsible for a whole host of atrocities throughout history? Friends, that's one of the most common challenges and questions I get from people when I travel around speaking on Christian apologetics. Interestingly, even this week, I was talking to a young man who attends Lakes Free. And we were talking about his interactions with friends in, in his college circles and on campus. And, and he said, Jason, I get that question all the time. What about the Crusades? I mean, if Christianity is such a great religion, why is it responsible for so many atrocities? I'd be willing to bet many of you have heard that same, same challenge. Friends, let me, let me say something to you this morning. History is littered with examples of terrible deeds committed in the name of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's just an undeniable reality. There have been a lot of horrible things done under the banner of Christianity. However, you will find zero justification for these atrocities in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Okay? Just because somebody waves the banner of Jesus doesn't mean they have the endorsement of Jesus. And so when we look at 
historical examples like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem Witch Trials and, and on and on you can come up with examples of these atrocities that have taken place. Friends, just because somebody does something horrific in the name of Jesus doesn't mean they do so with the stamp of approval or the endorsement of Jesus. See, carrying the flag of Jesus or, or carrying the cross of Jesus is not indicative that you're truly a follower of Jesus. And that's an important understanding that we take away this morning. Just because somebody claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they truly are a Christian. Just because somebody commits an atrocity under the banner of Christianity doesn't mean they're truly a follower of Jesus. And this is an important understanding, and it's a distinction that Jesus Christ himself made. Okay, Jesus told his followers to be ready and be on the watch for these false followers. Okay, look at what he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, friends, Jesus makes an important distinction here. He, he says you will know his true followers by their fruit. And the fruit that he's talking about there is twofold. It's the fruit of their doctrine, what they believe. Do they have that correct beliefs about God taught by Christ? And then secondly, do they live out those beliefs consistently and are those beliefs evidenced in the fruit of their lifestyle, in the fruit of their actions? And so Jesus says you'll know a follower of him by their fruit. The, the true Christian friends will give evidence of a changed life. The, the true Christian will be someone who is growing in Christ-likeness. The true Christian will be somebody who seeks to honor Christ and faithfully live out the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, now this is important to understand, friends. What did Jesus teach his followers? Right? We, we could look at a whole host of things, but it is an undeniable fact of history that no figure in all of history, no teacher of religion or morality or philosophy of ethics ever taught a greater ethic of love, mercy, and forgiveness than Jesus Christ. He overshadows all of them. And, and when you look at the things that Jesus taught his followers, teachings like Mark 12 where he says the two greatest commandments... There's nothing greater than these. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He, he tells us in Luke 10 that love of neighbor is characterized by mercy. 
That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The, The one who shows mercy is truly the man's neighbor. He says in John 15, the greatest love in this world is to lay down one's life for another. He says in Matthew 5, 38-39, don't retaliate. If somebody hits you, don't retaliate, but turn the other cheek. Friends, that's a revolutionary idea. It wasn't just revolutionary 2,000 years ago. That's still revolutionary today. He says in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, these are truly radical ideas. And let me ask you this question, friends. Which of these teachings of Jesus looks anything like the various atrocities so often attributed to Christianity? Which of these teachings looks like like the atrocities committed in the Crusades or the Salem witch trials or the Spanish Inquisition, right? Where do you get those when you look at the actual teachings of Jesus? You just can't find the justification there. Jesus doesn't give the justification. It was very interesting in World War II. Adolf Hitler tried to paint his Nazi regime as being in the, under the banner of Christianity. He, he tried to claim that the Nazi movement was a Christian movement. One of the, the famous theologians of the 20th century, a, a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth, was once invited to preach in Germany while Germany was under the Nazi regime. Karl Barth was told that when he got up to preach, before he started his sermon, he had to declare, Hail Hitler! Karl Barth refused. He refused. He says, I won't do it. And then he said this. He said, it's hard to declare Hail Hitler right before you exegete the Sermon on the Mount. See, friends, there have been a lot of evil things done throughout history under the banner of Christianity. But you won't find endorsement for any of those things in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand this. When we look at history, we shouldn't judge Christianity based on those who simply claim to be Christian or even on the acts of Christians who failed to live Christianly. That's not the judge of whether the message of Jesus is true or not. Christianity should ultimately be judged and ultimately stands or falls on the person and teachings of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate judge of whether Christianity is true. Who was Jesus? What did he teach? What did he claim? And and do we have good reasons to trust and believe in him? So, So that's truth number one we need to understand on this response to the charge of oppression. Truth number two we need to understand. Quoting the word of God doesn't mean you're speaking for God. Friends, so critical to understand this point. Quoting the word of God doesn't mean that you're speaking for God. You can literally cherry-pick verses out of the Bible to make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say. And and people regularly do that. But but just because you can cherry-pick a thought or a verse out of the Bible doesn't mean 
you're accurately representing the Word of God. Let's look, for example, at one of those quotes we looked at earlier, Michael Runyon. Michael Runyon. In his quote from xchristian.net, Michael Runyon says, The Bible is a product of its times, uh, revealed by the Ten Commandments. Nowhere in these commandments is there a condemnation of slavery, genocide, child molestation, cruel treatment of homosexuals, or non-human animals. But it does suggest that a wife is the property of the husband. Now, now there's a lot we could unpack in that quote, but I want to look at that last statement. Okay? He's referring there to the 10th commandment. So you've got the 10 commandments, and he's referring specifically to the 10th commandment, suggesting that the 10th commandment treats women as if they were the property of their husband. Well, obviously, anyone would disagree with that idea, especially today, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, treat your wife like she's property? Well, what's his justification? Again, he's arguing this is what the 10th commandment says. Well, let's look at what the 10th commandment says in the Bible. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Semicolon. Now, if you understand grammar, that semicolon there is important because everything after that semicolon qualifies what is being talked about as part of your neighbor's house. But, if you don't understand the original Hebrew that this was written in, you're going to fail to recognize that the word house in Hebrew literally refers to a household. And under the banner of a household, you will find both persons and property. Okay, A household doesn't just consist of property, it consists of persons and property. So in the 10th commandment, God says, don't covet your neighbor's household, your neighbor's persons and property, all right? And then he goes on to qualify what is included in that. That includes don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet your neighbor's servants, don't cover his ox or, or covet his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this isn't saying that the wife is considered property, like a physical possession that is owned, but under the banner of household, God is conveying the idea that it is wrong to covet something that is not from your own household. So I'm not to covet anything in my neighbor's household. That includes his wife or his physical property. All right? If you don't understand that, though, you can cherry-pick this verse out of context, and you can make it appear to the world that God is saying, look at this man's treating his wife as if she's nothing more than property, like his oxen or any other possession in his home. But that's not exactly at all what, what God is saying to us here. And again, this is just one example where what you'll often discover when you look at the various skeptics' arguments or critics' arguments, they love to pull a phrase or, or a verse out of the Bible, making the claim that it says one thing, usually something very crazy sounding to our modern ears. They, they pull these verses out of context, making the claim that they say one thing, when in reality God is conveying something dramatically different. Something dramatically different. I want to share with you this morning some helpful principles for how we can rightly understand God's word. 
All right, I'd encourage you to write these down. These will literally revolutionize your understanding and your interpretation of Scripture if you'll grasp these four principles this morning. How, how can we avoid falling into these errors of, of these cherry-picked verses out of context, these phrases that are misinterpreted? How, how can we avoid that dynamic and, and truly understand what God is conveying to us when we study his word? Let, let me share four principles with us this morning for understanding the Bible correctly. Number one, Hugely important. The Bible is a library, not a book. Understand this, friends. The Bible is a library, not a book. When we have this book in our hands, this collection of books in our hands, what we're holding here is not a single book. We're holding a canon, a collection of scriptures, which is really more akin to a library than it is to a single book. Inside this leather-bound cover are 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, written in three different languages on three different continents. It's really an incredible collection of books. And with this incredible collection of books, what we discover is that like when you go to the library, in a library there are different sections with different genres of books, that's exactly what we find in the Bible. 66 books with a variety of different genres. And so when you open up your Bible, for example, you'll discover that in the Bible you'll come across genres like history, like law, poetry, wisdom literature, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. These are all different genres that we find in the library that is the Bible. And when you understand that, you know that when you read a book like the Psalms, which is a book of poetry, you're going to read that book very differently than you'll read the book of Acts, which is a book of history. Okay, If you don't understand those genre distinctions, you're going to be in big trouble right from the get-go. So, so first and foremost, recognize that the Bible is a library, not a book. But understand this as well. God tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by him. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we have a library here 66 books that are all profitable for us. Why? Because they are all equally inspired by God. But we need to recognize God's given us various genres that convey the truth to us that he wants us to know. And that's important to understand. Principle number two this morning. After we recognize the Bible is a library, not a book, we next need to recognize that the Bible was written for us but not to us. Okay, this is, this is a crucial point to understand, friends. The Bible is God's word for us. Like, like the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Friends, that's a universal truth. That's a timeless truth that applies to all people for all history, right? God gave us his word. It's inspired by God. He gave it to us as a lamp unto our feet to guide us but it was written for us, not 
to us. And so we need to recognize this reality. And, and in doing so, we need to seek to understand the Bible in light of the original context in which it was written. The Bible was written to different cultures, with different languages, with different customs and practices. Let, let, me, let me give you an example of how this works. If, if my kids pulled out a box of old, my old keepsakes, and in, in this box they found a letter that, that my grandfather had written to me 20-some years ago, 25 years ago, right? And in this letter, they're reading the letter, and in the letter there's a line where my grandpa says to me, Jason, I'm going to be sending you a link. Now, when my kids read that statement, I'm going to be sending you a link, in their 21st century mind, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, he's going on the internet, and he's going to copy a link and text it to me. But that is something very different from what my grandpa was conveying 25 years ago. 25 years ago, if any of us received a letter or a phone call that said, hey, I'm going to be sending you a link, you, wouldn't have you would have immediately assumed, well, they're going to be sending me some kind of parcel in the mail with maybe a, a chain link or some kind of connecting device, right? See, we need to understand that in the same way, when the Bible speaks, it speaks in the context of the original recipients. And that's hugely important for us to understand. Let me give you an example of how this is often misused in our culture today. Many times, critics and skeptics of Christianity will pull out Bible verses, for example, like Deuteronomy 22, 9 through 11. And, and they'll use these as an example of how just ridiculous and absurd the, the ancient rules and laws in the Bible were. So, for example, Deuteronomy 22. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Okay, you don't use two kinds of seed when you're out farming. Lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. Not only shouldn't you use two kinds of seeds, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Okay, don't harness up your ox and your donkey together and use them to plow your field. Okay, God says that's against his law. You shall also not wear cloth or clothing of wool and linen mixed together. Say, so don't mix your fabrics in your clothing, God says. Now, I've literally seen memes on social media where critics and skeptics of Christianity will use these arguments to convey the idea how ridiculous and absurd. I mean, God says don't use two different kinds of seeds, don't plow with an ox and donkey together, don't weave your clothes with two different kinds of, you know, linen and wool, don't mix that stuff together. I mean, how absurd. And people will use verses like these to ridicule the teachings of Scripture. But friends, if we fail to recognize that the Bible was written for us but not to us, we can walk away scratching our heads thinking, okay, well, this is, this is really crazy. I mean, literally, why is that in the Bible? Well, friends, that's in the Bible for a very good reason. It was a law God gave to the Israelites for a very good reason. You see, the Israelites found themselves living in the land of Canaan, surrounded by pagan cultures with pagan religions, many of which were fertility religions, religions that were obsessed with sex, and they believed that by performing various sexual rituals, 
they could win the favor of the gods who would then ultimately provide blessing for them. And so they would perform all kinds of crazy deviant sexual practices, not only physically, but also in the way they lived their everyday lives. One of their practices was the practice of wedding different things together thinking that that would earn their fertility God's favor. So, for example, the pagans in Canaan would wed different kinds of seeds together when they would plant their fields. They would wed different kinds of animals together, partnering them together. They would wed different kinds of fabrics together. And all of that was intentional, thinking that by wedding these things together, they were gaining the blessing of their fertility gods. Now, when you understand that, friends, well, that changes everything about how we understand this verse. God's not simply making these crazy arbitrary rules. What God is doing in the laws he gave the nation of Israel was very intentionally encouraging them to be set apart from the culture around them. He's saying, look, it don't be like the pagan God people around you who worship these false fertility gods. And so what that's going to look like for you, Israelites, is unlike them, you're not going to wed two different kinds of seeds when you plant your fields. You're not going to wed two different kinds of animals together, even in the act of plowing your field. You're not going to mix different kind of fabrics like the pagans around you. Because God was trying to set the Israelites apart from the cultures in which they found themselves, setting them apart wholly unto him, different and distinct from the cultures around them. Now, friends, are there spiritual principles here for us in this verse? Absolutely. There's all kinds of spiritual truth here for us to apply to our lives. For example, God wants us to be set apart from the sinful practices of the world. God wants us to pursue holiness in our lives. God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. Those are all truths written for us that we can glean from even these really strange-sounding verses. Truths for us, but not written originally to us. And so this is why we don't apply these verses in the same way as the ancient Israelites. Because these were laws God gave to govern ancient Israel, not universal laws for the governance of all people in all times and all places. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. That's so important to understand, friends, when you come across these kinds of passages, when you come across these seemingly challenging arguments. Let me show you uh, principle number three. You should never read a single verse. You should never read a single verse. This is so important, friends. When you go to the Bible and you find a phrase or a verse of Scripture, you need to understand that that phrase or verse falls in the wider context of the paragraph that's it, that it's in, of the chapter that it's in, of the book that it's in, in light of the totality of the rest of Scripture. You always need to interpret everything in the Bible in light of its context. You start with the verse, then you move to the paragraph, then you move to the chapter, then you move to the book, then you look at that in light of the rest of God's Word. 
If you fail to do that, again, you can cherry pick the Bible to make it say anything you want it to say, and you can come up with radically distorted interpretations of God's word. Let, let me show you how this is so important. Never read a single verse. I, I want to highlight three examples that are very common in our culture today, uh, examples where Christianity is claimed as being oppressive. T take homosexuality, for example. If we were to look at the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, friends, that's a pretty dire message, right? I mean, I mean, not just for homosexuals, but for all of these other people, too. I mean, if we just took those two verses out of the context of that passage, and all we had were these two verses, and I've seen critics of Christianity do this. They'll put up memes that say, God hates homosexuals. Here's the example. Men who practice homosexuality, God says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that sounds pretty dramatically negative towards homosexuals. But let's add verse 11 into the mix. Let's add verse 11. Paul goes on in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, does adding that verse change things? It changes everything. It changes everything. Now we discover that while God's law and standard says, look at these are things that are out of bounds according to my holiness. That includes men having sex with men, homosexuality. That's out of bounds. We talked about this last week. However, God says you can be washed. You can be cleansed. You can be forgiven. More so, keep in mind the context of who he's writing. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. And Paul says, such were some of you. In other words, there were homosexuals who had repented of their sins who were now part of one of the most significant churches in the early church of Christianity. So now we go from this impression of Christianity being, you know, pretty dire in opposition to homosexuality to recognizing Christianity being a source of freedom and liberation and hope for people who are in the bondage of homosexuality. Even welcoming them into the fellowship of the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's awesome. But let's take another example that's often brought up in our culture today. Slavery. Slavery. I've seen critics of Christianity point to verses like Exodus 21.7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Whoa, wait, what is this? This is, this is in God's law? Like God is actively promoting slavery? Not just any kind of slavery. God's saying, look at it, it's okay for a man to sell his daughter. I mean, this is ridiculous. How can anybody believe this stuff? But friends, again, we need to understand what was going on in the context here. When, when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not talking about the kind of slavery that we so often think about and associate as Americans, the, the kind of slavery that plagued our nation for so long. 
What, what the Bible's referring to here is a bondservant arrangement where somebody could sell themselves or their family members into servitude, indentured servitude, if, if they had debts that they couldn't pay or if they were poor and couldn't care for themselves, they could sell themselves or family members to another household who would then care for them in exchange for them performing service for them. Friends, this is not an unusual arrangement. In fact, this is still practiced in many parts of the world today. I was at a funeral Friday night for my mom's cousin, and one of the testimonials in the funeral shared how her cousin's grandfather ended up coming to Canada as a bond servant when he was five years old his parents died and there was no one who could take care of him so the orphanage in England sold him to a family in Canada who took care of him in exchange for him helping them out on the farm same kind of a thing this was happening even as recently as a hundred years ago here in the western world all right so so what God is doing here is he's talking about actually a provision for the poor who really had no options in that culture. And, and, and you read the wider context of this passage, you discover that it goes on to reveal that God desires that this girl is protected so that she's not exploited or abused, but that she becomes part of the household under their care, under their provision. God is not expressing his approval of slavery here. He, he's not endorsing this is the ideal here. He's not telling fathers, this is a quick way you can make a buck by selling your daughter into slavery. None of that is true. Okay, This isn't the same kind of slavery that we so often think about. In fact, I can prove to you that quotes like we read earlier that the slaveholders in the Civil War hold, held up their Bibles and said, see, slavery is a good thing. Friends, from the very beginning, God condemned that kind of slavery. In both the Old and the New Testament, slave trading was condemned by God from the very beginning. Look at Exodus 21, 16. God says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, in the Old Testament, if you're a slave trader kidnapping people and selling them, that was an abomination in God's eyes, punishable by death. What does the New Testament say? The New Testament says the exact same thing. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Understand this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, okay, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul says God condemns slave traders and slavers, people who kidnap others and sell them into slavery. There is no endorsement for the kind of slavery that was plaguing our nation early in our history here. Okay, There was no endorsement at all for that. And so if anyone ever tries to tell you that the Bible endorses slavery, all you got to do is point out these two verses. Exodus 21, 16, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. God condemns slavery, slave trading from the very get-go. So again, we need to make sure we never read a single verse, but we need to read the Bible in the context of what was going on in the time. Lots of other examples we could talk about. Let me go to principle number four this morning. 
we need to recognize that the entire Bible points to Jesus. The entire Bible points to Jesus. History truly is his story. And all of Scripture, friends, is pointing us to the person of Jesus. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us the very same thing in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here the author of Hebrews is telling us, look it, God has revealed truth to us in many ways, in Scripture, through the prophets, but his ultimate self-revelation is his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know God and you want to know God's will, you've got to look to Jesus Christ. And what this means for us, friends, is that when we come to the difficult parts of the Bible, when we come to those verses that are challenging, that we have a hard time understanding, we need to first and foremost begin with Jesus. Start with Jesus and let the person and teachings of Jesus be the lens through which you view those other difficult, challenging passages. I have a friend, Mickey Walker. He, he preached here at Lakes Free a few years ago. He's a missionary and a street preacher in Ireland. And you can imagine, as a street preacher in Ireland, he interacts with all kinds of people every day. He's heard every question under the sun, every challenge under the sun. Mickey will often say to people, look, when they ask him a challenging question or, or, or bring a criticism of Christianity, one of his responses is, you know what? I don't know about that, but let me tell you about Jesus. I, I, I don't have an answer for that one right now, but let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Because again, friends, all of the challenging things that we see in Scripture must ultimately be funneled through the person of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ as we've seen in our study in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 4, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. Friends, there's never been a figure in history who has brought more liberation to the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the disabled, to women, to slaves. I mean, Jesus revolutionized the whole course of human history. And so we need to point people back to Jesus. Start with Jesus. And then work your way down to those challenging topics. But Jesus is the focal point. And when we point people to Jesus, friends, that has the power to, to really change everything in the way we view our faith and, and the teachings of Scripture. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I hope this has been helpful to you, giving you some insights to answer this charge that Christianity is an oppressive religion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. We thank you for the opportunity to look at these principles that can help us understand your word correctly and not be misled or confused or, or led astray by the criticisms prevalent in our culture today. God, I pray that you would take these truths, embed them deeply in our hearts, and, and help us recall them when we have the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths. And we pray, God, that we would stay rooted in your truth and, and walk faithfully in light of your word and that we would know life and life to the full as we seek to honor you. We thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the book of Jude, verses 1 and 2. To those who are called... 
beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. God bless you and have a great week. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.